great truth. Thank you very much for that song. Luke chapter 13, I'm so glad to be with you this morning. As we're going through the book of Luke, I have enjoyed this study. Today, I don't have a lot of time to give any background, very much background, but I will tell you this, that Luke is one of the 66 books in the Bible. Now, the Bible is one book with uh, 66 books inside. The first 39 were written before Jesus came. We call that the Old Testament. The next 27 were written after Jesus goes back to heaven. That's the New Testament. The whole Bible, the theme of the whole Bible is how can sinners like me and you be reconciled with a God who's without sin? He's holy. He's holy. Can you just prance into his presence doing the best you can? The Bible says no. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The main character of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is the way, he's the truth, he's the life. No man comes to the Father but by, by him. It's not through the church. You can't get saved through a Baptist church. A Baptist church cannot save you. A Catholic church cannot save you. No religion in the world can save you. You, can't, you can get baptized till every tadpole knows your social security number. <laughs> you can get baptized in every creek or river. And it, won't, it won't save you. Water cannot wash away sin. The only thing that can take away sin is Jesus. It's his death, his burial, and resurrection that can bring about salvation. And that's what the Bible's about. It's about Christ. And the book of Luke is one of the longer books in the New Testament. It's written by a man. It's written by God, but he used the instrument of Luke. He was a medical doctor. And he definitely did a lot of research, and he worked to find out information and gives it to us. As much as 40 to 50% of what Luke says are very unique to him. There are three of the Gospels that are called synoptic Gospels. That means they kind, of, they kind of cover a lot of the same territory, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke has the most unique perspective. And then John talks about Jesus as God. A far um, over half the book of John is just the last few hours of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. So the book of Luke is very unique, lots of things. He tells us that Jesus is man. He was 100% God and 100% man. And so he gives us some very great insight in here. In Luke chapter 13, as I've looked at this, I believe this is in the last few months of Jesus's earthly life and ministry. Now, probably as much as three years have gone by. He will serve. He was 33 and a half years old when he went to the cross and gave himself a ransom for our sins. The first 30 years, he worked in a carpenter shop. Now, he has been already, we've learned that he, how he was born in the book of Luke and, and the, 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 the scenarios of the shepherds and the angels and his mother Mary and Joseph and all those things. His dedication uh, is in the book of Luke. He, how that he uh, worked and subjected himself to his mom and dad, his 12-year-old experience uh, that we know about when he worked with, the, with the, the, the religious leaders of the day in Jerusalem. And then we find that he, he, uh, he fasted and prayed after his baptism. His baptism is in the book of Luke. And then he chose 12 men that he would send them forth. They would be with him. He'd send them forth to preach. That's in the book of Luke. Then he began to indoctrinate them and teach them on the new way of living. With Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, he wants us to walk and, and, to, and, and march to the beat of a different drum. And he will tell them, listen, your lot is, it's a different way. He compares the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven to the way this world lives. And it's a beautiful, a beautiful thing. But he is working, his whole ministry would be in the nation of Israel for the most part. 
Just a small little town, a country about the size of New Jersey. But he would be in that region, and he would train 12 to be with him, and they would go after he died and paid for our sins on the cross. And why did Jesus have to die? Because the wages of sin is death. And either you die and go to hell, or Jesus takes your hell for you. Somebody has to die. So he died so I could live. He paid the penalties. He was separated from his heavenly father, so you and I would not have to be separated from him. But now he is being very much, the, the, the ratchet has been tightened down, and the, the, the vice grip has been done on him, because he's getting ready to go to the cross. He has spent three years. He's done nothing but good, but, but the people that are losing traction are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. Primarily, those folks have leavened the people of God. They have brought in rituals and rationalism and, and royalty to the nation of Israel, to the Herodians. And they have really, they don't like him because he is, he's uh, on a total different, he's playing a different ballgame altogether. And they're coming after him. And you can see at every point they're sending tricky, ricky lawyers to try to trip him up and to cause him difficulties and, and to, to find any reason in which they can get him uh, removed quickly. They will do that, but they're going to do it on God's time. If they would have done it, they would have stoned him. But that wasn't God's play. He said, just like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He'll have to die suspended between heaven and earth so that you and I would have access to God. And they would have stoned him. No, he was going to be, he was going to be delivered for the sins of the world by crucifixion. It was already prophesied. And he was there. But now he's getting a lot of intense pressure. And he's coming back with more pressure. Jesus is not intimidated. God is not nervous about anything. He doesn't even have a headache. He's not nervous about anything. He's got everything under control. Our God is in the heavens. He has done whatsoever he pleased. But he is interacting with people. And everything in the scriptures are for our profit and God's glory. He's trying to teach us something here. I would say in chapter 13, the overtones are very strongly nationalistic in, per, in, 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 in purpose, talking about the nation of Israel. He is dealing with his people in particular and the coming age of the kingdom of God. However, it's very practical in application for you and I. I think we'll see that. Let's look at verse number one. Can we please? The Bible tells us here in verse number one. There were present at the season some that told of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. Of course, Pilate would be instrumental in seeing Jesus go to the cross. It looks like he has now come into play. He's a very cruel man and uh, very, very much a puppet in, in Augustus's hands there, Caesar's hand. And his job is to take care of, of Judea. And now he has found some, looks like some Galileans, they're from the area of Capernaum where Jesus grew up, but they're probably insurrectionists. They had issues with the Roman government. When they would come together for one of the feasts, they would probably get vocal and verbal about how they felt about the Roman government. And he got them, and he killed them, and took their blood and mixed it with the blood of animals that were going to be sprinkled for worship and for the payment of sin, as the Jewish would do. He says, hey, and he made a mockery of it. And he killed, those, those people were killed. And, and they brought that information to Jesus, wondering, are you going to side with the Galileans or with Pilate? Trying to get him tricked, I think, probably in that situation. 
But Jesus doesn't buy into their, to their cheese to get caught in that trap. He doesn't do that. You know what he does? He says, look, these guys are insurrectionists, but you're going to perish just like them if you do not repent. Look, if you would, please, what the Bible says in verse number 3. I tell you, nay, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And then he goes on and he tells the story about 18 people upon whom these guys were probably against the government. These guys work for the government. They were building a tower in Shalom, an aqueduct with rivers going into the pool of Siloam. And they fell, the tower fell and slew them. Think ye that they were sinners above all men, dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. So one thing He's telling him, he said, you can hear people that have died, 18 people died in an accident when a tower fell on top of them. Or if they're insurrectionists who, who revolted against the Roman government and Pilate mixed their blood with the blood of sacrifices, are these guys bad? Are these guys bad? You know what really what we need to think about is every one of us are going to die one day. And except we repent, we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ while we have a chance to do that, we're going to likewise perish. But not just physically, but eternally. See, the Bible speaks of two deaths. A physical death that separates you from your body and your soul and your loved ones. And a second death that separates you from God in the lake of fire. The Bible doesn't mince it words. Jesus says it very clear in the scriptures. He just says, in death and hell, we're cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. See, the, the fact that there are two deaths, a physical and a separate death, a spiritual death, is why being born again is so important. That's why Jesus said you must be born twice. The physical death is when the physical death is separation from body and soul, and the other one separate from God. The physical birth puts you into the human race, but the second birth puts you into God's race, into God's family, and that's why everybody needs a second death, a second birth. Here's Bible math: if you're only born one time physically, you're going to die two times. Physically separated from God and eternally separated, excuse me, separated from your family and your body and eternally separated from God. But if you're born twice, you have a physical birth and you have another time and place when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're only going to die once. And Jesus is turning the tables on. They're bringing up these events. He's saying, hey, what you need to think about is taking these. And you know, sometimes people will spend all kinds of things trying to find up stories and reasons and, and loopholes. Sometimes people will say, well, if... Um, you know, I would believe that, but what about the guy over in India that's following, a, a worshiping a cow? What about the, the kid that was born in Papua New Guinea who never heard the gospel? Now, I don't know exactly. Here's what I do know, is that God is very just. And the Bible says the whole world will stand before him without excuse. But I will tell you this, I wouldn't let such foolish logic keep me from putting my faith in Jesus Christ myself. I wouldn't go to hell over a question I couldn't answer and say, well, that's my reason why I'm not accepting Christ. Well, I think I'd, I think I'd just believe what God said and personally get my sins forgiven. That's what I would encourage you to do. Let's look at the next passage of Scripture, if we can, please. We're looking at verse number 6. And he spake unto them a parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. And then he said to his, the dresser in his vineyard, Behold these, how long? How long was Jesus in his ministry at the time? It's kind of interesting there. I'm, I come seeking fruit on this tree and find how much? 
He said, cut it down. Why cumbereth the ground? Why waste the space? Why take in the nutrients into this tree if it's not going to be fruitful? And he answering said unto him, Lord, the dresser says to the owner, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it or fertilize it. And if it bear fruit, well, you'll be happy. And if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. This is a story, and Jesus segues into the story about the Galileans and about the, the folks that were killed at the, at the Tower of Shalom. Shalom. And now he is saying, let me tell you a story. He said, there's a guy who owns a vineyard, and he has a fig tree that he planted three years ago. And every, every year he comes, and he looks underneath the leaves, and he finds no fruit. And he goes to the guy who runs the vineyard and says, look, just let's cut our losses. We've three years, cut it down. We're getting no fruit out of this. Cut it down. Let's plant something else. Let's don't waste the space and just, just plant a tree here that's not going to give us anything. We, we are trying to get fruit. And then the man who works on the property says, hey, give me one more year. Let me just plow it and let me just work it and let me stimulate it and put some fertilizer there one more year. And if it produces fruit, well, well. If it doesn't, then we'll cut it down and do as you said. Well, that's a, that's a story, but it's representing, I think, God the Father. He's the one who planted the, planted the, the thing. He's the one who expects fruit. By the way, he made you, he saved you, and he expects you to do something. Every Christian needs to be a fruitful Christian. Don't get to the place where you just all, you're just taking in, taking in. All you do is take up space. Just cumber the ground. You just receive, 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 but you do not have any kind of fruitfulness. I think he's referencing probably the nation of Israel. He came into his own and his... Jesus had been there three years. His ministry is coming to an end. And instead of receiving him and embracing him, they ha he has no fruit that they're accepting him. And Jesus says, Lord, would you give me one more year? Would you, would you give me a little more time to work on this in my last days? Maybe just an application there to consider. By the way, the next year, Pentecost took place. You know this common with all 3,000 people that got saved at Pentecost? Guess what nationality they were? They were Jewish. They were the people of God who had come from all over the world to hear the gospel. And Peter got up and preached under the fullness of the Holy Spirit of God. And they came to Christ and they got baptized, and they joined themselves to that assembly, and many of them went back to their places and preached the gospel. Just a possible analogy. I don't want to get into the weeds on the situation, but I think we can take away that God made us, and he expects us to produce fruit. How many would agree with that, with that story right there? And I'm glad he's faithful. I'm glad that Jesus ever liveth making intercession. For who? You say, Pastor, what's Jesus doing right now? He is praying for you. For you who are saints, no doubt he would pray for the lost to be saved. He prayed for them in, in the high priestly prayer of Jane, uh, John chapter 17. But he was praying for you and me that we will bear forth fruit. And that our fruit would not just be now, but would remain. Dear friend, you want to make sure that you're an answer to the Lord Jesus' prayer. He pleaded with the Father, Lord, give me another year. And I want to encourage you, however long you have to live, live your life for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you got yourself 
tangled up with the affairs of this life, decides, you know what, I'm not going to continue down that road. I want to use my life for the Lord Jesus. I want you to make me fruitful in my time that I have left. First Peter mentions that, Second Peter. Chapter 4, he said that we should no longer live the rest of our life doing the lust of the flesh, but we would live our life fulfilling the will of God. I think that's something all of us ought to work at. Look, if we can, please, let's continue on. Jesus now is on the Sabbath day, and behold, there was, verse 11, a woman which had a spirit of an infirmity 18 years and was bowed together and could not so wise, so wise lift herself up. So this lady is the Sabbath day, and there's a lady that's come. The Lord Jesus will say there's no doubt some satanic attack upon this lady, but she is bent over. It may be a type of way Israel was. By the way, when you're bent over, all you can see is right now. You can see what's here. You can't see that direction. And certainly they were short-sighted. But she's bent over and been like that for 18 years. And the Lord Jesus sees her, and of course, you'll find that, this, that Jesus was criticized for, I think he was never criticizing for not tithing because he did that. He was not criticized for helping people because he did that. But they continued hounding him on their man-made Sabbath day rules. And that was where they really hacked him at. And they were all together on that. And so Jesus, this lady is there, and he knows her thought. He, they criticized earlier for the disciples who took corn and ate on the Sabbath day. Whenever he healed the withered man who had a withered hand, the man who had a withered hand, he healed him on the Sabbath day. Anytime he did that, that's when they got really up in arms. Not because, and, and we'll see the logic here is very challenging. You would think if anyone can get help on the Sabbath day, let's do it. But it really, they didn't care about people. They cared about the rules. And we find that that even happens today in our society. It happens in this church. It happens in my mind. Sometimes we get more caught up on some kind of a, a T that's not crossed or an I that's not dotted at the expense of what God is trying to do. Let's look and see what the Bible tells us, if we can. Verse number 12. And when Jesus saw her... He called her unto him and said unto him, Woman, thou art loose from thy infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day, and said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work, and them therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. He said, Hey, there's six days that the guys could be healed. Why in the world are we doing it on the day of the Lord? And remember, the Sabbath, was the, the Sabbath was made for the Lord, not the Lord for the Sabbath. And so he said, look at this. He healed this lady on the Sabbath. He could have done that any other day. Why couldn't he have done that on a Sunday or a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday? There's six days he, could have, he chose to do it on the Sabbath. What do you think about that? And he began to accost Jesus. Let's notice what Jesus does in response. Would you please? Look at verse number 15. Then the Lord answered him and said, Thou what? Wow, you actor. Doth not each of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his, his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? He said, Don't you guys, every, even on Sunday, untie your donkey or untie your cow and take them down to the water and let them get water and bring them back? Don't you do that on Sunday? How many have a dog here? You have a dog. Would you raise your hand? Do you still walk your dog on Sunday? You still take him outside? 
Yeah. They said, he said, you hypocrite. You, you take your dog out. You take your cow out. You take your donkey out to get him something to drink on the Sabbath day. Now he, tell, he turns the tables. Let's look at verse number 16. And ought not this woman, being a daughter of who? A Jewish lady, whom Satan hath bound. So no doubt Satan had some kind of affliction upon her. Lo, these how many years? Be loosed from the bond on the Sabbath day. And when he had said these things, all the adversaries were what? That's a good thing to underline there. And all the people rejoiced. Adversaries were ashamed, and the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. I want to just say this real quickly. If you're a child of God, you should want God to use you. You should want God to help you in your daily walk. Not just to be used on a Sunday. But you know when God gets involved in using me, one of the things I would long for my life and your life too, at the end of my life, I would like to know that I had a life and you had a life only God could explain. I have seen what John Wilkerson can do in his flesh, and it's embarrassing. But I've seen a few times what God can do when I let God use me. And those are the most precious memories of my life. And we want those memories. Boy, uh, the Bible tells us that a fool hath no delight in understanding, but that his heart may discover itself. He just wants to do what he wants to do. She wants to do what she's got in her head to do. But a wise person says, Lord, what do you want to do with my life? And you know, when God uses you, those two things will happen. Adversaries will be ashamed, and the common person will rejoice. When you move into their neighborhood and you are a light for Jesus Christ, Oh, you might have some adversaries, but they'll have to say, you know what? Uh, these guys are really good people. And the, the general population will say, you know what? I don't understand them, but I respect them. And I rejoice that God has used them in my life and my testimony. And dear friends, that's what you want in your life, and that's what I want in my life. Let's continue on if we can, please. Just for the sake of time, I'll take four more minutes of your time, and let's follow along verse number 18. Then said he unto what the kingdom of God is like, whereunto it, I resemble, I, shall I resemble it? He said, what's the kingdom of God like? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and cast into the garden, and it grew and waxed to, to a great tree. And the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. And again, whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It's like leaven. Which, hath, which a woman took and hid three measures in the, in, of meal till the whole be leavened. I want to just quickly say he's using two illustrations here. Our time will allow me to give you my total opinion about it. But, and I'm not sure if I'm right or not. I'm quite honest with you. There's a lot of, you know, I read different people's opinion about this. There's a little bit of different uh, thoughts on it. But a mustard seed was planted, and he said it's abnormal, but the kingdom of God is kind of like a small little plant that is seed, and then it grows into a large tree. Mustard seeds are not usually grown on a large tree. They're in a small bush. So it's an abnormal growth, and then, unfortunately, fowls of the air sit in that. And when you see the fowls of the air in the Bible, normally are talking about vultures or talking about people that... Uh, birds that will take away the seeds. I think he talks about Christianity oftentimes. We want to make it corporate. We want to make it big. And he said, this is abnormal. This is not my plan. It's for to God to take faith and grow it to so big that to, and, and it becomes a big organism. 
that really the birds of the air sit on there and they see a seed fall and they go down and pick it up and eat it for themselves. I think sometimes Christianity and religion is that way. We want something big. God doesn't judge a church by its size. He judges a church by its Christ-likeness. I do believe that God wants many people of every tongue and nation and of the world to get saved. If I didn't believe that, we wouldn't take a missions offering. We wouldn't pray for missionaries. We wouldn't go soul winning. We wouldn't print gospel tracts. We wouldn't run buses. God wants many people to be saved, but he's not interested in a large organization. And boy, religion becomes very ritual and mechanical. I think also, he said, it's likened to leaven. Leaven in the Bible is a yeast. And it's put into bread to make it blow up. And, and you put a little bit in it, and it spreads itself all through the bread and causes it to, to blow up. He said, that's kind of how the uh, kingdom of heaven is desired. It's oftentimes sin gets in there, and it begins to blow up, and it becomes a false. Have you ever eaten a piece of bread where there's a, there's a big crevice there? It's just it's fluff. It's not strong. It's just it's just a, it's puffed up, but it's not really filling because it's 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 not as, it's 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 blown up. I think that's that's kind of the, the thought here. But let's go on to the next truth, if we can, please. If you don't agree with what I just said, meet me after church, in the parking lot. And if I'm not there in five minutes, you start without me, okay? Because I won't be there. Verse number twenty-two, and he went through the cities and the villages, teaching and journeying through Jerusalem. Verse number 24, he's now he's, this time has gone by, and he's gone to other places now. Verse 23, and he said unto one, Lord, are there few that are saved, that be saved? And he said unto them, strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and hath, to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer unto you, uh, answer and say unto you, would you read the, the verse there at the last part? I know not whence ye are. Then shall you begin to say, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence and have taught in our streets. Thou hast taught in our streets. We've heard you. We spent time with you. And he shall say, I tell you, I know not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. Verse 28, would you read it with me, if you would, please? There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. The Gentile nations are going to come from all over the world and they're going to be in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last shall be first, and there the first shall be last. As he concludes part of this story, and there's more of the chapter left to go, but he says, look, make sure that you don't become so familiar with Christ, but you don't have him as your Savior. He said, once the door is closed, and of course in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 16, we find that when, when, Mo, when Noah got on the ark, and who closed the door? God did. And people banged on the ark, let us in, let us in, let us in. Nothing can be done. And he's talking about people who have been exposed to the word of God. They've been exposed to the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God, but they have not received it. 
And they'll one day say, Lord, we, we, we worked in the church. I helped at youth conference. I sang in the choir. I worked in the orchestra. I, I helped in nursery. I did this on the bus. Ah! And they'll say, I don't know you. I don't know you. And people will come from all over the world that, that have less information than you and I have who will be accepted in the kingdom of God. But for people who knew him very familiar but did not accept Jesus as their Savior. Dear friend, wherever you are today, don't leave today without the assurance that you're saved. The Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the Lord shall be saved. Two shalls there. The one shall is my part, to believe in my heart and call upon the name of the Lord. The other is God's part. He said, if I would call upon him, I shall be saved. If you're doubting your salvation, it's because you're either doubting your part or you're doubting God's part. If you have not called on the Lord, you should doubt that. Make sure you've put your faith in Christ. If you have believed in your heart and accepted Christ, you should not doubt God's part. In the hope of eternal life, which God cannot lie, promised before the world began. If he saved you, that's his promise. If you've not been saved, you and God need to figure that out. And don't let pride or procrastination keep you from getting that settled in your heart. You never want God to look you in the eye and say, I don't know you. You are familiar with me. You can even say, Lord, Lord, but I don't know you. Don't let that continue in your heart. Let's deal with that. Let's pray together. Can we please? Thank